very, very interesting to preach on a series in marriage. Heard all sorts of things. I heard uh, week one that somebody said, well, I guess we don't need to come back for three more weeks. Unfortunately for that person, it's a 12-week series. <laughs> heard uh, others who are doing their homework assignments and having horrible fights. And uh, others who are actually enjoying this and learning to live this, these truths that you're hearing from the scriptures. I want to encourage you, men, as I ended last week, take the point, take the leadership. Don't make your wives ask you to do these homework assignments. You be the man. And you lead, because if you don't begin to apply these truths, then at the end of this series, your marriage is going to look the same way it looked at the beginning. And for some of you, quite honestly, are saying, possibly, because I've heard you say it to me, well, it's okay, our marriage is good. Is it really God-honoring? Is it really as satisfying as it could be? Uh, Very few of our marriages are. So let me encourage you. <clears throat> to bear with me as I clear my throat, we had our church picnic yesterday, pig roast. I think I got the swine flu from all the pork. But I keep clearing my throat, so just bear with me through this. You know, a flight attendant spent a week's vacation in the Rocky Mountains, enjoying the snow-capped peaks, the smells of the pines, the vista views. She also enjoyed meeting a very eligible bachelor who owned a cattle ranch and lived in a log cabin. And at the end of that week, by the way, this is a true story. At the end of that week, this man proposed to her. He asked her to marry him. But it had been going too quickly for her. She needed time to think, so she left and went back home and went back to her job. And the first day back on the job, she's up in the air on a plane, and she's so in such angst about this decision she went into the restroom of the plane to splash some water on her face when all of a sudden the plane encountered turbulence and the light went on and said please return to the cabin and so she did she went back to the rockies and married that man who lived in that log cabin <clears throat> that's a true story is that how we make our decisions about who to marry Does God have a say in who we marry? In other words, does God have, before you're even born, a person selected in his will for you to marry? Now listen, if you Google that very question this afternoon when you get home, you're going to find that there is a wide spectrum of answers in the Christian church. In fact, if if I gave you the opportunity to all give me your response, I know of people in our church that would have a much different answer than I would. Are we left on our own to make that decision? You know, those who are in painful, terrible, struggling, ongoingly hard marriages often begin to ask, did I make a mistake? Did I marry out of God's will and choose the wrong person? Friends, there are people so paralyzed by the fear of marrying the wrong person, that their hearts can't even make up their minds, if you know what I mean. And yet there's others who have an alarming lack of discernment as they 
walk to the altar blinded by the romanticism of love. Well, last week we saw that God pronounced it not good for Adam to be alone. So he put the man into a deep sleep. This is the first surgery. And he takes from Adam a rib. And from that rib, he fashions, as my wife has been reminding me, not made, fashioned, as women don't sweat, they ooze smell. No, I'm just kidding. That was a joke. That was a joke. He fashioned a woman for him. Now listen, isn't it such a joy? If you're like me, I tell you what, Denise and I absolutely love our children's birthdays. And we love Christmas. You know why? And you parents, you know this. You're the same way. Isn't it great to see their smiles light up from ear to ear as they open, they receive and open that gift? Can you just imagine? Listen, it's okay to imagine when you read the Bible. Just don't go far from the text. But can you imagine God's face as he is, so to speak, walking this woman down the aisle to give her away to this man? Can you imagine the smile? the pleasure that he has in giving this gift to Adam. And can you imagine Adam's blurred vision? You know how it is if you get surgery. You kind of come slowly out of the anesthesia or you wake up from a deep sleep slowly and for a little bit you might not even know where you are. But Adam's coming out of this sleep. And what drew his gaze, now listen, I'm not being heretical, just listen, read the text. What drew his gaze For just this one moment alone was not God. Oh man, that sounds terrible. Read the text. It was the woman. So beautiful that God allows her to be center stage for just a moment. As he gives this gift to Adam. And his heart is so overwhelmed. Now hang in there with me. So overwhelmed that out of his heart comes these words. Wow, God, are you sure about this? I mean, is this really the one for me? I mean, what if we get married, God, and in 10 years we find we're miserable? I don't know if this is the one for me. How can I know, God? How can I really know for sure? Can you just picture Adam saying that? He doesn't say any of that. Here's what he does. He erupts into the first Hebrew song filled with poetry and this is what he says this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man friends there's no trace of doubt there's just a glad understanding that they woman and man eve to adam belonged together with one another how could he be so confident And from where did he gain this assurance that she was for him? Now, I know what you're thinking, I think. I think I know what you're thinking. Probably like this, uh, Tim, there really weren't any other human beings around. It was kind of obvious. But that's not what the Bible tells us. And so if we're going to adhere and be biblically centered Christians, then we've got to find our way back to the word of God and look when it says in verse 22 and you'll see the reason that adam had no doubt in the rib that the lord god had taken from the man here it is he made into a woman and brought her to the man 
You see, Adam had an unshakable, joyful trust in the guidance of his heavenly father that produced a settled confidence in this woman who would be his wife. He had perfect faith, perfect trust, in the knowledge that his heavenly father was guiding all things to their most satisfying and God-honoring end. And Adam rejoiced in Eve. He held, he learned to hold fast to her. And they learned to love one another. Friends, that's the confidence that was in Adam. If my father is going to give this gift to me, then there's no problem at all. But can we have that confidence today? In a planet with over 6 billion people, can we have that today or is that a one-time incident? Now the sin's in the picture. Can you still have this kind of confidence that Adam did? After all, Adam did really only have Eve around, so it was kind of a no-brainer. But does God still bring marriages together? Can you be confident that he will for you or has for you brought your spouse to you? Well, last week we saw that there is no greater human tool that God uses for our spiritual growth and highest blessings than our spouses. And until we latch onto that, friends, you cannot begin to create a redemptive understanding of why you're married to who you are. Listen to this from Jensen and Payne, who wrote a book that I can only heartily recommend you buy and read. It's called Guidance in the Voice of God. Look at what they say. If you want to have a right understanding of God's guidance, you must understand this, that God's will about which job you hold down and for the next 50 years pales in comparison with his determination to present you spotless and blameless before Christ on that last day. That's preeminent what's in God's mind. And he goes on. In fact, everything else is simply a handmaid to that one great aim. Whether and who you marry, what job you have, which church you attend. Go ahead and wipe that last one out. All these are simply tools in God's hand to fashion you into a pure and spotless member of the body of Christ. That's marriage. That's the way we've got to look at marriages. That God has brought us together for a reason, and that reason is always his highest aim, and that is to present as pure and spotless to his son, Jesus. I think today, at the end of this sermon, we're going to see that God cares very, very much who we marry, and that he invites all of us to put our joyful trust in his providential care. Can I just teach you one theological word just one it's really important it's called the providence of god and you know what the providence of god is here it is it's god's faithful and effective which means always produces the intended results faithful and effective care and guidance of everything which he has made toward the end which he has chosen which is always our spiritual growth Friends, that's what the doctrine of providence means. And it's affirmed verse after verse in the Bible, story after story, and clearly seen in the search for a wife for Isaac. 
And that's where we're going to be in Genesis 24. You see, in this story, though, I've got to let you know, in this story, there's two layers. You've got the human marriage layer, and then you've got God and the church layer, Jesus uh, and, the, and, and the church layer. Here's what I mean. Abraham, in this story, represents God the Father. His most trusted servant represents the Holy Spirit. The wife, her name is Rebecca, represents Israel then, later to become the church. And Isaac, we already know, is a type of Christ. So this is what this story is about. It's about two thoughts, independent and actually together, interdependent with each other. And it contains actually four scenes. We're going to look at the first three, and then I'll bring out the last one at the end. And here's the first scene, and I'm calling it the gift of the father. In ancient days, it was parents who would arrange their children's marriages, and a wife that was given to his son was the father's love gift for him. Now, you've got to get that. That's going to help you make sense of this story. When a father would find a wife for his son, it was a lifelong gift of love. And the new bride and the new groom how ironic is this, would actually learn to love one another. Whereas in our culture, you fall in love, then you learn how to get married. And just as God brought Eve to Adam, Abraham would bring a wife to his son Isaac. Except here's a problem. Abraham's 140 years old. He can't ride on a camel anymore. And his son Isaac's 40 years old and unmarried, and Abraham's wife Sarah died about three years previous to this. But if the promise of God that a great nation would come from Abraham through Isaac, then Isaac has to get married. So Abraham sends his most trustworthy servant back to his own homeland to find a wife that would be his lifelong gift to his son. And it was important that that his servant didn't find a woman from the Canaanite region that they were living in because the Canaanites were ungodly pagan people. Abraham said to his servant, listen, you've got to go back to my homeland. Don't find a wife for her in case I die. I'm giving this job to you. Don't get a wife for my son from this area. And the servant actually, I think, made the mistake of saying, well, what if she won't come back? You know what Abraham does? He exercises an ancient oath-taking, which to us sounds bizarre but was common. And that day he made his servant reach under his thigh on or near Abraham's genitals because what that spoke of was that if, I, if you don't dispense this job fully the way I'm asking you to, then my descendants will wreak vengeance upon you. He's serious. So the servant took gifts for a dowry, loaded up 10 camels with some men, and he set out on a 460-mile, 17-day journey back to Abraham's homeland. And the chapter shifts to the second scene, and the second scene we're calling the faith of the servant. It's early evening when they arrive and he goes to the city's well immediately, which is outside the city. And he makes his camels kneel at the watering trough. Now, why does the Bible point out that he made his camels kneel? 
Well, it is interesting that for camel herders, when a baby camel was born, the first thing that they would do for the first 20 days of that camel's life, they would tie its four legs together, put a blanket over his back, and weigh it down with stones so that they cannot stand because they had to teach it to kneel because a non-kneeling camel was useless. You can't load or offload cargo. You can't climb on and climb off if a camel can't kneel. So he makes these camels kneel, but listen, they're at a water trough and there's no water in it. But there will be. You see, the fetching of water in that day was usually the job of the young women and they would get the water in the evening in the coolest part of the day. So here's this servant, all 10 camels kneeling at the trough, no water in the trough, and he bows his head and he prays. You can read it in that chapter and he prays, God, make my mission a success. And I'm not asking for a miracle like Gideon's going to later on. I'm just asking God that a, a woman would come and when I ask her for a drink of water, that she would give me a drink and then volunteer to water all my camels. That's what he prays. And before he even got done praying, before he was even finished, here comes a woman coming from the city towards the well. Friends, parents, you pray for your children, for who God will lead to them in marriage. remember going past my parents' bedroom almost every day. They would be on, on their knees before my dad would leave the work praying. I could hear them praying for all six of us kids. Praying that God would lead the person that he wanted to the altar with us. I remember uh, for me, I remember before I met Denise, I was dating a girl that we had gotten very, very serious. We had talked about getting married and she broke up with me. It devastated me for months. And I remember at the end of that, that time of just really being, trying to work through this grief, that I took a piece of paper out and I wrote down on that piece of paper everything that I knew I wanted in a, in a wife, and then the last thing I wrote was, God, whatever you know I need that I'm not aware of, that's what I want. And I went out behind my apartment and I prayed and I offered that up to the Lord by burning it, not that I think that worked, I think just God you know saw my heart and he took the grief away and it was months later that i met my wife and i wish i kept that piece of paper i am utterly convinced that every one of those attributes is in her that's the power of prayer here's this faithful praying servant praying that god would provide a wife for his master isaac and we read in verse 15 and they hear she comes from the city and her name is Rebecca. Her name means flattering because the Bible says she was very attractive. She was a maiden, meaning that she was a woman of marriageable age. How would he know that she was a maiden? Well, because she didn't wear a veil. Women that didn't wear a veil would be obvious that they were not yet married because they were, they were telecasting their intention. I am available. And he asked her for a drink. And after she had drawn her water from the well, he asked her for the drink, and she willingly obliged. And then, unbelievably, incredibly, she says, I'll feed, I'll, I'll water your camels. Do you know why that's extraordinary? Do you know that a camel drinks 20 to 25 gallons of water a day? 
And the ancient jars holding these, this water would have held about three gallons at a time. Do you realize that was over 200 gallons of water that she committed to draw from that well? Meaning 70 times Rebecca would go down into that well, fill that jar, carry it and lug it and drop it into the trough. And the Bible says that she did it until they finished drinking. <clears throat> and all the time this servant, the Bible says, gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Friends, listen, those of you who are single, there is a period of waiting in your engagement or even preferably before where you are gazing and looking at the character of the person. And he's looking for her character. And yes, she was beautiful, but what he was looking at was the beauty of her character. Because if Isaac is to be given a wife, she must be lovely in who she was as a woman. And friends, listen, Rebecca's character was absolutely stunning. Ladies, listen to this. She was modest. Read the text, you'll see she did not speak to this servant until he spoke to her. She was not forward. She was polite. She was gracious. She was caring. She was hardworking. She was a serving woman. She was perfect for Isaac. But would she say, I will? And that's what he needed to see. Rebecca had a brother that most of you are going to be familiar with. His name was Laban. You remember Jacob and Esau. Jacob tricked Esau out of the birthright and then fled for his life. And he fled right back to where his mom came from, the very town right now that we're speaking about. And Laban's, her brother was still there. And Laban tricked him into marrying his oldest daughter, Leah. Well, Laban... She goes running up to the house, Rebecca does, at the, from this well experience with this servant. And Laban comes running back down, the text says, unusual for men in that culture. And he came down and he extended hospitality and he invited the servant and the camels and his men up to the home for the evening. Where the servant explained all of what he had prayed, all of the mission that his master Abraham had given to him. And his, her brother and her father originally said, yes, you may have Rebecca in marriage for Isaac. They consented, recognizing that it was from the Lord. But the next day, his parents struggled with letting go of their daughters in marriage. They struggled and they said, listen, give her 10 more days with us. And the servant said, no, I must leave today. And so they brought Rebecca out. And you've got to get this. They bring Rebecca out in front of all the family, and they said this, it's right in your text, will you go with this man? And she answered, with her own choice, I will go. No one forced her to marry Isaac. She wasn't coerced. She was allowed and given a free choice, yet through all of this, God was guiding all things according to his perfect sovereign will and the chapter shifts to the third scene. And in the third scene, we see the joy of the son, and, and this group is approaching back where Isaac is. And it's here that we see the character of Isaac clearly. Because the third scene, as they're approaching, they find Isaac. He is out in the fields in the evening meditating. 
See, Isaac was a man of God who worshipped God and thought much on the goodness of God. And as the sun was setting and the evening sounds began to emerge, Isaac was right there taking it all in, reflecting on the handiwork of God, bringing glory and prayer and worship to his father. It wasn't during the day because you're to work during the day. It was in the evening after the work was done. And probably praying, I know I would have been, at that moment for the success of the servant who was nearing, about to bring his wife to him. See, Isaac was trusting in the Lord with all of his heart, leaning not on his own understanding, in all of his ways, acknowledging God, and God was about to direct his steps. Friends, did you notice something in that text? It says that Isaac had just returned from a very difficult town to pronounce. I'll take my best stab at it. The word is Be'er Lakai Aroy. But here's what it means, and it's not without accident that the Bible puts this in. Here's what it means. It means the well of the living one that sees me. See, God was seeing Isaac who was walking with him. He saw Isaac, whose name means laughter, but whose laughter had turned to mourning with the death of his mom. And though it had been three years since she had died, he still had no one to comfort him. He was all alone with no wife. And like Adam in the garden, it wasn't good for Isaac to be alone. Now, I want you to notice something that the scripture says, and you're going to see it, what we already saw in Genesis chapter 2. In verse 63 and 64, it says very beautifully, ladies, listen to this. This is absolutely beautiful. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And then the Bible connects that at the same time. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes. Their eyes met. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. Friends, this is extraordinary because Isaac starts to walk towards them. And that was a breach of ancient protocol. You never walked towards your servant. You always made your servants come to you. But he had trusted God so deeply that he was eager to meet this woman and to see the one that God had for him. And when he saw, when she saw a man approaching, the Bible says, she dismounted, so eager was she, she actually, the Bible said, the Hebrew says, sprang off her camel. She asked the servant, who is this man coming near? And when she learned that it was Isaac, friends, she immediately put her veil over her face because it was a woman's sign of modesty, a sign of submission, a sign of being spoken for in fact in the ancient wedding ceremony the woman would wear a veil to the altar and at the front of the altar the man would take that veil off of her head and put it on her shoulders and you're reading isaiah about jesus and the government shall be on his shoulders the veil was a sign of authority i am recognizing my leadership and walking you on the paths of righteousness But did you notice, like we saw in Genesis 2, now friends, listen, you've got to see these things. 
Did you notice that Isaac demonstrated no doubt that this woman was to be his wife? He asked the servant no questions. He needed no time to decide if he would receive her. Why? Is it because her beauty convinced him? Or was it his loneliness motivating him? Again, the Bible tells us why. And it gives us our clue in verse 66, where it says, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done, not what the servant had done, all the things the Lord had done through the servant on this mission to find him this wife. And when Isaac learned God's handiwork all through this, it provided him the confidence to joyfully receive her as his wife. Now, I told you there's four scenes. So let me finish on the fourth scene. Because there's a lot that's transpired between verse 66 and verse 67. She didn't spring off the candle and, or camel and go to the tent and get married. <clears throat> Abraham would have had to come and give his approval, and there was a part that Abraham would have had to play in this wedding. So there's some time that's gone by. And in this final scene, we're allowed to peek in on their marriage. And it's in verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah. I'm losing my voice quickly. Good thing I'm almost done. <clears throat> Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, friends, listen. Note the order, because it's important. Isaac brought her to her mother, his mother's tent on the day of their wedding. And friends, it was common for husbands and wives to have separate living quarters. And it was at that tent that they were married and that they consummated their wedding. But notice where the scriptures put that he loved her. It was after the wedding. He was comforted, he loved her, and he was comforted, and his grief was taken away. Friends, listen, love came after the wedding because love is something you walk into and choose rather than fall into. Because when you fall into love, you fall out of it when hard times come. But all through the Bible, God's love, which reigns in the hearts of his children, is agape love, and agape love is a choice to put your love on an object that is precious. They weren't compelled to marry. They weren't forced to marry. They saw the hand of God in bringing each other to the other, and they married and chose to begin to love. God truly is the Lord of the Rings, amen? All you bad marriages wouldn't say amen, would you? Friends, listen. Do you really believe, honestly, at the very core of your hearts, that the person that you are right now married to, God brought that person to you as a gift? A gift with a purpose. And that purpose is to make you pure and spotless for the day that Christ comes back. That's a redemptive mindset for marriage. 
And if you're not yet married or you were married and right now you're not, do you really believe that God does bring that person to you? And that if you trust in him with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and in all your ways acknowledge him, God really can direct your steps even in the tricky arena of marriage. Friends, I tell everybody that I marry. There's not a wedding that I've officiated where I have not said this. When you get to the altar... And you say your vows, that's the moment that you're married. Not when I tell you by the power and authority of Pennsylvania. You're married before God when you're at the altar in the presence of witnesses and God and you utter those vows. And trust that God is good enough to you that he will not make a mistake. Even in our foolishness, God is still sovereign. And make your marriage work by choosing to love friends there is no room for divorce in god's people i don't know if anything can get people people madder at me than that well what if he has an affair read the book of hosea abandonment to me is the only reason and i know there's a lot of people in here that have had divorces and i understand you probably hate me I do love you. Friends, you got to hear the truth. God has brought to you the person that he has for you to help make you pure and spotless. Learn to love in his grace. And if you're angry at me, go talk to Tom Hall. He's back visiting for the weekend. Come talk to me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for all that you've done. Lord, this is hard. Some of this is hard truth. God, we need marriages to be satisfying and God-honoring. We need marriages to be strong so that this church could be effective, powerful influence in our world. And Lord, I know I've worked with so many people struggling. I know it hurts. And Lord, there are times where <clears throat> our spouses will leave us and we've got to rely on your grace. Father, I'm praying and asking that you will help us to love one another, recognizing your handiwork and trusting in that and choosing to love. Lord, help us with that in Jesus' name. Amen.